The book of Genesis, as our series title reflects, provides the truthful story of our origins. Chapter one began with an all-creative, powerful, sovereign, wonderful, sufficient, triune God who over the course of six days spoke into existence the heavens and the earth and everything therein. Chapter two then provided us with a recap of all that God had made as well as a more detailed look at day six when he formed the first man and woman. Last week in chapter two, we considered God's seventh day rest. We considered God's blessings and provisions for the man and the woman and we considered God's first command to them that every delicious and nourishing fruit-bearing tree was to be freely and fully enjoyed by them. Every tree was theirs, but one. In chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord God commanded the man that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil should not be eaten from, for doing so would bring about death. And now without any further ado, I would invite you to follow along as we pick up the story in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she ate, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Lord God, we, like Adam and Eve, have all disobeyed you. We have sinned. We deserve exile. And yet because of Christ, we who were once far off have been brought nearer. Now, teach us your word that we might live as what we are, which is belonging to you, to the praise of Christ, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as was the case with Genesis chapters one and two, there are so many ways we could break this passage down and unpack what we've just read. Before the remainder of our time, we will make three important observations. If you're a note taker, here will be my outline. Number one, the nature of temptation. Number two, the result of rebellion. And number three, the hope of restoration. Let's look at number one, the nature of temptation. Before we're told of Eve's temptation, we're first introduced to her tempter, a serpent, a snake, one of the animals God had made on day six of creation, but there's something that's off about this particular serpent, right? It speaks. Serpents don't speak, that's not normal. Later in the biblical story, we learn that this serpent is in fact being animated by a rebellious spiritual being, a fallen angel. Now it begs the question, where did this rebellious spiritual being come from? Well, we're not told here. However, sometime after God's creation of heaven, after that, but before Genesis 3, sometime in between, an angel named Lucifer became so impressed with his own beauty, intelligence, and position that he tried to hijack God's throne and was thus cast out of heaven to wander the earth. Now, have you ever heard the adage, misery loves company? This is true of Lucifer, who is now called Satan, Satan meaning adversary, Satan is about to speak to Eve through this animal, this serpent, and he is about to tempt Eve 
to follow in his own fallen footsteps and to jockey for supremacy of God or equality with God. Misery loves company. Now, interestingly, at the end of this chapter, this animal, this serpent, is dealt a punishment for serving as a vessel of Satan's scheme, right? The serpent's punishment from, from, from here in Genesis chapter 3 onward is that he would crawl on his belly, which seems to indicate that snakes once had legs. I don't want to speculate too much. And I realize that these details aren't expressed in this passage. But if you're a first-time visitor here, it really bears repeating we don't think talking snakes are normal. <laughs> There's something very unique about this one, right? In verse one, we're told this serpent not only speaks, he does so in a crafty way. Now, craftiness isn't inherently evil because craftiness can simply be cleverness, but it's the way that this serpent leverages his craftiness that's evil, okay? Listen to what he asked the woman at the end of verse one. Listen, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? <laughs> no, that's not what God said at all. This crafty serpent is twisting God's words. He's sowing discontentment and casting doubt upon God's goodness. And unfortunately, the woman's answer to the serpent in verses two and three is only partially accurate. We may eat of the fruit of the trees, but God said we mustn't eat or touch the tree that is in the midst of the garden, lest we should end up dying. The clarity of God's command is already growing foggy to the woman. God never said to not touch the tree, nor did he imply that death was a mere possibility if they ate from it. He said, you will surely die if you eat from the tree. We need to see something here. We need to see how the crafty serpent simply twists God's words. And it's enough to get the woman disoriented. Look, it bears this uh, exhortation of application. We need to be familiar with God's word. Whew. I mean, flip on the TV and listen to all the charlatan preachers just twisting God's word to their own selfish gains. We need to know God's word. We need to be creatures of God's word. In verses four and five, the serpent takes one final deceptive swing by promising the woman this, you will not surely die. God's just saying that because he knows that if you eat from the tree, you'll be as wise as him. What a snake. Satan knows from firsthand experience that equality with God is not possible and that reaching for equality with God is a cosmic offense with dire consequences. He knows his promise to the woman won't come to fruition, fruition but it's the last nudge the woman 
needs before she chooses to eat despite God's clear command. And verse six gives us a threefold reason for her disobedience. It's a physical reason, an emotional reason, and a spiritual reason. First, the forbidden fruit is edible. So why not eat? Second, the forbidden fruit is beautiful. Makes me feel good to look at it. Why not eat? Third, the forbidden fruit will apparently make her to be like God. So at this point, she's foolish not to eat, right? This threefold look, is, it, this is the nature of temptation. And we could insert any temptation toward any sin, and the same would be true. Pornography, for instance, here we go. There is a physical desire, a bodily urge. There is an emotional desire, a wounded urge to feel needed or like, you know, in my case, like I'm in control of something, right? And whether we realize it or not, there is a spiritual component to pornography, right? Lust of the eyes is a drug and God has commanded against it for our protection and joy, but we don't believe that he's protecting us. We believe that he's holding us back from something good, and so we disobey him. We act in a transcendent matter as if we know better than him, and when we indulge of the forbidden fruit of pornography, we, in doing so, we remove his kingly crown and his robe, and we place ourselves on a throne as if we are in control. Physical, emotional, spiritual, cosmic treason in one act. When we eat of the fruit of drunkenness, or gluttony, or gossip, or racism, or materialism, hello 21st century Americans, we are doing exactly as Eve did in verse six. This is the nature of temptation. And here's what we ought to do about it. We ought to combat the twisting of God's words with the accuracy of God's words, kind of like Jesus does when he's being tempted in the desert by Satan in Matthew 4. We need to memorize passages of scripture of God's truth that speak specifically to the lies that Satan most tempts us with. And when we are being lured away from God, we need to boldly recite his wise and loving promises and remember that God never withholds what's best from us, ever, ever. He is always giving us what is best for us, even if it looks, even if, we, even if our minds can't attain how it's best for us. Let's look at the result of rebellion, point number two. After the woman eats in verse six, so does her husband, and he does so without any persuasion from the serpent whatsoever. One commentator observes, he just goes along with the crime. No questions asked. Little does he realize that his just fallen right in has just played into the official reversal of God's creation structure. Here's what I mean. In Genesis one and two, God's intended order went from God to the man, to the woman, to the creatures. But now, 
in Genesis 3, that order has been hijacked and reversed. The animal has now influenced the woman. The woman has now influenced the man, and neither of them are listening to God. Sweet mercy. The result of the first human sin wasn't that the forbidden tree was just missing a piece of fruit. The result has a rippling effect that is catastrophic. What God had wisely integrated and ordered, it now suffers disintegration and disorder. After the man and woman's disobedience in verse seven, their eyes are opened, but not in the way that the serpent promised. Isn't this the anticlimactic outcome of every sin? Whenever you've sinned, whenever I've sinned, on the other side of an affair or a shady business deal or a wild bachelor party or an explosive argument, our eyes are opened, aren't they? But they're open to shame and embarrassment and insecurity. And the aftermath of our sin always leaves us uncomfortable in our own skin, doesn't it? Just like the man and the woman right here in verses 7 through 10. Look, up to this point in the story, they have been naked. But now they feel naked. Exposed, ashamed, and afraid. As the Lord God is heard walking, verse 8, in the cool of the day, or in the literal Hebrew, the breezy time of day, they're afraid. Now, for the ancient Israelites who were the first to hear and to read this account written down by Moses, God's walking wouldn't have been taken literally because God is spirit. The walking of and walking with the Lord is a way of describing the nearness of God and our fellowship with him. But now that sin has entered the story, even the sound of God's walking in verse eight, that is the breeze moving through the trees, even the sound of that is not welcomed by the man and the woman. They're frightened, and they should be, because their fellowship with God has been tarnished by rebellion. Have, have you ever felt this way after a miserable week of sinning? Have you ever felt like you, know, you want to avoid the Sunday gathering at all costs? because of feelings of guilt. You don't want to be seen by God and by God's people. Look, sin pulls us away from fellowship into isolation. In verse nine, the Lord calls out to the man, that is the steward leader, whom he had personally commanded not to eat of the tree. Where are you, God asks. Now, God doesn't ask questions like this for his own sake. He knows right where the man is, right, right where the man is. The man comes forward in verse 10 and he admits to hiding from God out of fear. And given his flagrant rebellion, it's right for him to be afraid. God's word actually acknowledges it is a fearful thing when sinners encounter the holy God. In fact, at the end of the biblical story, all the way to the book of Revelation, we're told that unrepentant sinners will wish that mountains would collapse down upon them. Being physically crushed will be better than coming face to face with a maker who is holy. Just wear that for a sec. 
In verse 11, God asked the man more rhetorical questions, but the man's sin begets more sin in verse 12. Instead of accepting the blame, he shifts the blame. The woman whom you gave to be with me, he says, it's her fault that I have eaten from the tree that you forbade. All in one fell swoop, the Lord, or that the man throws his wife and God under the bus of his own sin. God addresses the woman in 13. She responds similarly, saying, well, it's the serpent's fault. See with me how sin is begetting more sin. Now, Lord willing, next week, Pastor Ed is going to unpack this a bit more in chapter four. But see with me right here in verses 12 and 13, how sin leads to the continued sin of justifying ourselves while condemning others. I look at pornography because my spouse doesn't give me what I need. I cheat on my test because my teacher doesn't do his dang job. I commit tax fraud because the government overspends. I don't obey God because he doesn't know what I need and deserve. I think I have said every one of those for real in my life. Our ancestral descent from Adam and Eve is proved in the pudding. We do exactly as they did. It's no wonder the world is the way that it is. Across every generation, ethnicity, and culture, we are all, as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What an indictment. This needs to be heavy. Let's all be underneath of the weight of condemnation for sin because, oh man, it makes the good news all the gooder. Amen. Our rebellion against God, though, has wrought our fall from God. We traded his order for disorder. We traded blessing for cursing, as we see spelled out right here in verses 16 through 19, when the serpent, the woman, and the man received just punishment for their treason. Verses 16 through 19 tells us a bit about why snakes don't have legs. <laughs> why, now in all seriousness, why, why childbearing and child rearing hurts. Why our jobs are so toilsome. Why women at their worst are nemeses to men and why men at their worst are abusive disgraces to women. We needn't look any further into the biblical story than right here. These are the results of our rebellion. <laughs> and some of us may be tempted to think when we read passages like, like here in verses 16 through 19, we might be tempted to think, well, God's being a little harsh. 
when Moses, later in the biblical story, when he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it like God tells him to do in Numbers 20, the punishment is that God forbids him from entering the promised land. When Uzzah reaches out to touch of the Ark of the Covenant that was not to be touched in 2 Samuel 6, God kills him on the spot. When Ananias and Sapphira pretend to give a generous offering in Acts 5 and God kills them, when Adam and Eve eat a little piece of fruit and God is about to expel them from the garden to their toil and eventual physical death, many of us are tempted to think, oh, oh, God is, God is acting a bit harsh, I think. Here's an illustration. Imagine you were a king or a queen. For some of you, that's quite easy to imagine. <laughs> imagine with me, okay? <laughs> imagine with me. One day while you're walking through your kingdom, you come across a beggar, you invite him into your castle, you feed him a lavish meal, you put a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, you give him a title, a job, and a personal bedroom in your castle. Before you go to bed that night, you broaden his welcome by giving him access to every room in your castle but one. There's just one room in all your kingdom you've told him not to go into. Now imagine the next morning you wake up to find that he had ransacked and pillaged the one room that was off limits to him. Even if you hadn't lavished him with outrageous generosities the day before, his crime would still be immense, wouldn't it? His crime would still be worthy of punishment. But you did lavish him with outrageous generosities. And all your generosities to him really serve to worsen his crime, don't they? I mean, you've granted him everything. You've trusted him with so much. His crime is magnified due to the outlandish generosities that preceded it. And so immediate punishment is altogether justified. It was between God and Moses and Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira and here Adam and Eve in the garden. They had been given every corner, everything, face-to-face -face interaction with Yahweh God. What they deserve is immediate, forever death. That's what I deserve. Cosmic treason carries a worthy punishment. But that's not what they receive. That's, that's not what, it's not what we receive. In fact, they, and, and, and here in this, in this passage, they mercifully receive a Provision, a promise, and protection. Under point number three, the hope of restoration. In verse 21, Adam calls his wife Eve because she is to be the mother of all human beings. And then the Lord God, Yahweh God, personal, relational God, makes a provision for them despite their rebellion against him. He covers the newfound shame of their nakedness by clothing them with animal skin. Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their own shame with withering leaves would not last. It needed divine improvement and our gracious Lord was willing to provide it. 
but it came at a cost. Notice this. An animal was deprived of its life in order to cover their shame. For so many of us, life is cheap and death is familiar, but for Adam and for the ancient Israelites who were the first to hear this account, death was recognized as what it is, punishment for sin. As theologian Marcus Dodds comments, suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. From the first sin to the last, the tracks of the sinner are marked with blood. It is clear our sin reaches beyond our own lives, inflicting injury and distress upon our surroundings. In only the third chapter of the biblical story, sin has utterly changed human relation to life and to God, and we cannot rise above its consequences but by the merciful intervention of God himself. which is exactly what God would do later in the biblical story. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, listen for the promise of the hope of restoration in our passage, verse 15. Theologians refer to Genesis 3.15 as the proto-evangelium, the first gospel announcement the first promise that Satan's sin and death will not have the last word. The Lord tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now listen. He shall bruise your head, you snake. And you shall bruise his heel. Later in the biblical story, this violent altercation between the promised offspring and the serpent would occur around another tree. In fact, this promised offspring would be pierced through his hands and heels to a tree. And he would suffer a mortal three-day death the bruising of his heel is painful. However, it is not final. Three days, God counted to three, and life explodes, triumphing over death. But the bruising or the crushing of the head is fatal. It is a death blow. The death of Christ on behalf of sinners reveals to us just how far God will go to intervene for his people. He personally suffered on our account. What a wonderful, gracious God. What a marvelous invitation to us. We're not in the garden. And now, by the grace of God, unleashed through the person and work of Jesus Christ, empowered by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, we can and must forsake sin and repent to cry out for forgiveness and receive it. And then we relish in the mercies of a creator who had every reason to punish us eternally, but instead he took the punishment 
you can't make this up. You cannot make this story up. The invitation is, 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 is really always the same. Oh, let us repent. Let us repent. We've seen the nature of temptation. Lord, arm us to fight off temptation by the power of your spirit. We've seen the result of rebellion. Lord, let it sober us. Let it reveal to us afresh what we are due, what we deserve. And then we've seen the hope of restoration, the promise, the provision, the promise. And God even offers protection right here in verses 22 through 24. He guards the way for these now sinners to not access the tree that would have let them live in perpetuity of, of spiritual death. He blocks it off because there was another tree that he was to provide, the tree of Calvary. By faith and repentance, the hope of restoration is that all of us who have been birthed in descendants from Adam and Eve, we can be created anew. And that is the opportunity that we have to repent, to tell God we are sorry for sin, to help us to turn from sin, to help us to trust his wonderful provision, his covering for our shame, poured out by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This is Genesis chapter three. Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Father, that you would make real to my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters, that you would make it real afresh how we have rebelled and how we are deserving of your just condemnation. So sober us with the bad news and then come in with the outrageous, wonderful and gracious good news that through the bloodshed, the life, death, and resurrection of your spotless lamb, when we trust and repent, when we cling to the cross, that tree of life for us, Lord, you can and do forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray, Lord, that the gospel would be made big in our hearts and minds today as we sing together for your glory and our joy, good God, and it's in your name we pray, amen.